Now we're looking at verses 17 to 20 of chapter 1 in particular, but I want to set the context by beginning to read at verse 12 and reading to the end. So if you'll follow with me in your Bibles, Revelation 1 verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which, you will, which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, last time we treated the first two panels or scenes of this final dramatic narrative of chapter 1, we considered the awesome appearance of our Lord in his post-resurrection apocalyptic glory, an appearance described in verses 12 to 16, which is a sandwich between the two scenes where he speaks. Two scenes, 9 to 11, now 17 to 20, where Christ speaks to John. So we want to begin today with John's reaction to that vision of the eschatological and apocalyptic Christ. And we begin with that phrase, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. The word dead here. It is possible to interpret dead as figurative speech. Here, a simile meaning as or like, that is, as or like to a dead man. Figuratively speaking, then, the apparently lifeless, dead, symbolic apostle. Symbolically, I should say, apostle. In a book of symbols, this figurative interpretation of the word dead in this verse is certainly plausible. Dead represents John as lifeless, still, without strength, prostrate on his face at the feet of Jesus. The figurative approach would emphasize the apparent incongruity between the dead John and the living John, 
John alive on Patmos is like the John dead at the feet of Christ. A somewhat ironic figurative simile. Living John is as John dead, figuratively speaking. You get it, I think. Most of us get it. The plausibility, even if the ironic simile of John's overwhelming experience of seeing the risen and glorified Christ in his heavenly and apocalyptic majesty, power, post-resurrection life, it's as if he is smitten with death at the vision. Now, of course, this language here is not metaphoric. There is no as or like in a metaphor. This is a simile which has as or like in it as we've had a sequence of them from verse 13 on. A metaphor would mean that it is different from the literal case or the literal fact. For example, Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. That is a metaphor. Christ is very different from a literal lamb. But figuratively, he expresses the image of a sacrificial victim. So the language here is not metaphorical, even though it is figurative and potentially symbolic. The language is, as I've already pointed out, is a simile. It uses the comparisons as or like, which means whatever is being compared is different from literal reality. For instance, Christ as or like the Son of, Law, the Son of Man means that he is not different. He is the literal Son of Man, and he is more than that. He is, in fact, the Son, the very Son of God. With the simile, there is an emphasis upon the lack of differentiation. For instance, Christ's hair in the sandwich unit here, Christ's hair is described as white as snow. His hair is not different. His hair is literally, as the vision portrays it, white as snow and more, more than white as snow. In fact, verse 16 tells you that his hair is bright, as bright as the sun in its strength. So the simile is underscoring the literal reality, but underscoring the literal reality in comparative sense so that it actually is suggesting something greater in the literal reality. Take Christ's voice there in verse um, 15. Christ's voice as the sound of many waters. This voice which John heard is not a voice different from the thunderous roar of cascading falling waters, but <clears throat> literally booming in rolling, cascading, decrescendo, and more so. The crashing of the waters at the base of Niagara Falls is Kid stuff in comparison to what John hears here in this vision. 
All right, so when we have the simile, it is underscoring the, the reality that is literally present, and even more than that reality, an expansion or an amplification of that reality. Now, could we suggest that there is more than figurative language here in when I fell at his feet, I fell like a dead man? Could we suggest that there is the language of actual reality here and more? And even more. Let us consider that possibility. Let's consider the possibility that this is more than figurative language. This simile is pointing to something beyond factual reality. Let us consider it with the understanding that this is a suggestion. This is a suggestion and not a dogmatic conclusion. Let us consider the possibility that John falls down in front of the feet of Jesus and is literally, actually dead. Literally, actually dead at the opening of this final scene in the drama of verses 9 to 20. All right, now the first thing to consider in support of that suggestion is the atmosphere or environment in which this scene takes place. It is the atmosphere or environment of death, death which is present. It is the atmosphere here of death which was once present upon the figure that he sees. Death which was once present upon the risen, once dead corpse, now alive Jesus. His body and soul have passed through physical death to post-resurrection, physico-spiritual life. In other words, there's the environment of the transition from actual, real, literal, physical, corporal death to life in this vision. Second, notice what Jesus says to the dead man at his feet. Fear not, or do not be afraid. That is the exact duplicate declaration that the angels uttered to the women at the empty tomb of Jesus in Matthew 28, verse 5. A declaration of a literal and actual resurrection from the dead by the body of Jesus of Nazareth. That environment of death and resurrection from the dead is fraught with this declaration, do not be afraid. Now finally note the touch of Jesus' hand. Notice his right hand on John, the dead man at his feet. Notice the touch of Jesus' hand on John after he fell dead. Is this not precisely what Jesus does when he raises the dead in the Synoptic Gospels? 
Is this not what Jesus did when he raised Jairus' dead daughter? He touched her hand. He took her by the hand and raised her from death to life. And is this not what Jesus did precisely when he was encountering the widow of Nain carrying out the bier or the coffin of her dead son? What does he do? He touches that coffin. He stops that entourage, that funeral train, and he touches that bier, and the boy rises up from the dead. At the touch of Jesus, the dead are made alive from the dead. At the touch of Jesus, John is made alive from the dead. That's the interesting question, is it not? Is that very same reality which was characteristic of our Lord's transitioning from real corporal physical death to real corporal physical life from the dead in his own earthly ministry, is that not being demonstrated to John here in this eschatological visionary ministry? Is the hand of Jesus here not merely incidental, symbolic, figurative, but it is actual. Is he actually teach it, touching a dead body, a hand once again raising one dead to life from the dead? John, dead in body, made alive in the body by the touch of Jesus' hand. And all this in an arena where the environment, yea, the atmosphere, is resurrection life. Post-resurrection life for bodies in heavenly glory. Jesus' body in heavenly glory. Resurrected body life. For consider this. If John is to be conformed unto Jesus, if John is to be conformed or united unto Christ Jesus in this arena in which Jesus is, in this environment in which Jesus exists, in this atmosphere in which Jesus exists, is it not fitting that he go through what Jesus went through? Death in the body and resurrection in the body at the touch of the hand of the one now alive in that glorious post-resurrection state. Is it possible that what John experiences here is being caught up into heaven in a way which he must conform or imitate or be a reflection, a very mirror of what has happened to the Savior who deals with him in that atmosphere and arena? John, given a foretaste not merely figuratively but actually, given a real and literal foretaste of what his Lord Jesus has already literally and really experienced. Jesus dead, risen, touched with glory, and alive in a post-resurrection arena. The Apostle John dead, risen, touched, and alive in a post-resurrection arena of heaven glorified, heaven's glorified Son of God. Is it possible that John is caught up into an apocalyptic <clears throat> Transformation 
because that's the only way in which he can understand or encounter the reality of that arena. It is more than a simile here, or is it? It is not mere reality, literal and actual. It is John pressed down into the environment which Jesus Christ now inhabits. John conformed to that arena as a testimony to the very reality and witness to the fact that he was once dead and made alive by the touch of the hand of the post-resurrected and glorified Son of God, Son of God's, Son of God, the Father. This would then be a union motif. That is, John united to his wonderful Savior, not figurative and symbolic merely, but a real and actual being pressed down into the very likeness of his Lord in his post-resurrection appearance, which is in fact the destiny of all believers at the end of the age. All of us will be raised up in the body, and those who believe in Christ will be bowing at his feet, not as though we were dead, but would they be passed through the dead and had that resurrected, transformed body glorified. Jesus has done it already. Is John getting a foretaste of it here? Literally. I think you grasp the possibility that there's more than symbol here. But, as I have said, I submit the suggestion for your meditation not, not for your indoctrination. I submit the suggestion for your contemplation, not, not for your indoctrination. But there is this wonderfully suggestive consideration that commends itself to me because of the arena in which the risen Christ appears to John and the glory, majesty of him in that arena is beyond death. It is beyond resurrection from the dead. He is already possessed of that glorified body. Can anyone fall at his feet as though dead without being conformed unto death and resurrection of the body himself. Well, it intrigues me. And so I leave it there, and Randy, I'll be happy to take your question. Yeah, it seems right if he was a sinful man and he sees God, both dead. Well, others have seen the glory of God without being killed, but there are those that have seen his glory and have died in the process. But... uh, (coughs) This, this emphasis, you see, upon the living Christ. I was dead, but am alive forevermore. You see, the context of this under, undergirding description of the resurrected Jesus, which brings us into that 1 Corinthians 15 arena of what that body is like in its spiritual subjection. Christ has such a body already. That we are destined for such a body. 
does John receive a foretaste of such a body in this scene? That's my suggestion. And if I persuaded you, good for me. If I haven't persuaded you, good for you. Okay, Rob, Bob first. Well, this says uh, he laid his right hand on me, but it doesn't say he got it by the hand. It's true, but I don't think that he could have laid his hand without touching him. So I was emphasizing, I was emphasizing the touch. But you were also emphasizing uh, he, he took these people that were dead by the hand and raised them to life. Yeah, he took Jairus' daughter by the hand, but he touched, he didn't take the widow of Nain's son by the hand, but he touched the beer or the coffin. So I was underscoring the touch rather than the taking by the hand per se, but if they taking by the hand, he's obviously touched her. Okay. Yes, Ben. Uh, in verse 17, this is, I fell at his feet as a dead man, says, and they have beat. I see that to be like dead, dead man. Otherwise, I would have said, I fell at his feet, a dead man. I fell at his feet, I think, a dead man. That would make sense. Oh, okay. I, I see what you're saying. If, you, if you're saying it's an explanation of, of what happens after he falls at his feet. So it's underscoring the fact that he's at his feet as a dead man. That's correct. Others did touch him, <laughs> which is interesting. Jesus instructed them to touch him, unwrap him, and let him go free. Yes. Does that tie in with? Um, well, that's an interesting connection, I, and I wouldn't say, I've not thought about that, but I wouldn't say it's out of the possibility of consideration that the, the right hand is the is the hand of, shall we say, grace and salvation. It's it's the blessed hand that touches. And Robert, um, what's the difference between this appearance and uh, the appearance that uh, Paul saw on the road to Damascus? It sounds to me like it's the description's the same. The light is. Correct. That's part of the description. But there's no indication that Jesus touches the Apostle Paul. He speaks to him, but he doesn't say, do not be afraid. But he didn't fall down dead. He falls down at, on his feet prostrate. And yeah. The, the text does not say, I don't believe any of the accounts say that he fall, fell down as dead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the closest thing in Paul's experience was being being caught up to the third heaven in Second Corinthians, where he can't where he can't speak. He's he's into that arena, but he can't even describe it because it's so much more glorious than human language can reflect. But that's 
that's not a death-resurrection motif. That's a transformation motif. Well, all right. Uh, uh, for good or ill, uh, there you have my case. And I rest my case to go on to look at other aspects of this text. Now, verse 17 also has the phrase, I am the first and the last. Now, here, the word first and last are recursions or repetitions of the Alpha and the Omega in verse 8 up above and the language, the beginning and the end in Revelation 22, verse 13. Now, these recursions or repetitions are synonymous. They're all synonymous, indicating the eternality and essential or consubstantial deity of the Son of God. They are underscoring the fact that he is forever. He exists eternally. That's one of the elements of this first and last Alpha and Omega beginning and end. The I am which is in front of first and last here, the Greek ego eimi, the I am is the theophonic name. It also occurs up above in verse 8. Same in the Greek, ego eimi, I am, it's the theophonic name. That is, it's the theophonic name of God in Exodus 3, 14 at the burning bush, I am that I am, ego eimi. Now that I am theophonic name that Jesus uses here is reprised by the favorite Christophonic self-designation of Jesus in John's Gospel. The Christophonic designation of Christ is, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection of the life. Before Abraham was, I am, ego eimi. So this ego eimi is very familiar to the Apostle John, and it's one of the reasons Jesus refers to himself in this vocabulary, in this Christophonic or Christophany of uh, revelation and demonstration. All right, so this would all, this language would cement or encourage or, uh, or assure John that who he's dealing with is the one that he knew so well during his public ministry, the I am that I am who is Son of God in the flesh. But without detracting from the co-essential deity of the Son of God, without diminishing his consubstantial eternality as very God of very God, I don't want to diminish that at all, but let's consider first and last redemptive historically. Let's look at this language, first and last, redemptive historically, and on your handout, I have the Greek words, protos and eschatos, transliterated for you, and the derivative English vocabulary from those Greek words, protological or protology and eschatological or eschatology. These are words which come right out of the inspired biblical text. They're not invented by me. I'm not trying to be fancy or talk over your heads. This is the language which is derived from these Greek terms and in fact, these Greek terms occur several times in the New Testament. First Corinthians 15 would be another place where they are, where, where they're in the Greek inspired version. All right, now let's think 
redemptive historically about protos and eschatos. Let's think redemptive historically about protological and eschatological realities. Let's think biblically theologically as we consider some concrete examples. First of all, let's think of the beginning. Let's think of the protological Adam. Let's think of the first Adam. The protos Adam anticipates the eschatos Adam. In fact, that's the language of 1 Corinthians 15.44. The protological Adam anticipates the eschatological Adam as the eschatological Adam recapitulates and fulfills the work of the protological Adam, finishing it with finality. There is no effort needed for any other son of Adam to perform that which Adam was charged with performing and failed to do so. So that in the recapitulation of the eschatological Adam, there's the reversal of the failure of the protological Adam, much to our benefit and to the glory of God in his grace to sinful Adamic sons and daughters. Second case, the protological lamb. The protological lamb of Abel anticipates the eschatological lamb of God. Abel brings a lamb from his flock for his sacrifice. That lamb anticipates the eschatological lamb of God, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The protological lamb of Abel anticipates the eschatological lamb of God as the eschatological lamb of God recapitulates the protological lamb of Abel and fulfills it, finishing it with finality. We are not sacrificing lambs anymore. The eschatological lamb of God has put an end to that. It is over, finished, fulfilled, completed, served its purpose. We're done with it. Because Christ lives. He lives as the final Lamb of God for sinners slain. Another example. The protological universal deluge and Noahic judgment anticipates the eschatological deluge of fire and cosmic judgment See 2 Peter 3, verse 6, compared with verse 10. The pathological universal deluge anticipates the eschatological deluge of fire as the eschatological deluge of fire and judgment recapitulates the protological deluge of water judgment and fulfills it, finishes it, consummates it with finality. After that fiery deluge... No more old heavens and earth. They're dissolved with a fervent heat. They are gone, finished, finally consummated. The protological Hebrew. The protological Hebrew. What are you talking about, Denison? The protological Hebrew, the sojourning pilgrim Abraham, 
The protological Hebrew anticipates the eschatological Hebrew, the pioneering and perfecting sojourning pilgrim Lord Jesus. The protological Hebrew anticipates the eschatological Hebrew as the eschatological Hebrew, the Lord Jesus, recapitulates the protological Hebrew whose day he saw, whose day has been accomplished. He was glad when he saw it and thus fulfills the sojourn of the pilgrim people of God from all nations. The pilgrim people of God from all nations blessed once and for all in the seed of that protological Hebrew. And what could we say of the protological Passover lamb? The protological Passover lamb anticipates the eschatological Passover lamb of God. As the eschatological Passover lamb of God recapitulates the protological Passover lamb and fulfills it with finality. No more Passover lambs after Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed for us. You don't need to observe Passover. It's fulfilled its purpose. It's completed. Jesus is the end of Passover. He is the eschatological Passover lamb and feast. Be careful. Be careful of those Christian services in which they redo the Passover Seder. Be careful. Be careful of what you're doing. And what of the protological Joshua Jesus, who anticipates the conquest of God's enemies in and by the eschatological Jesus Joshua, as the eschatological Jesus Joshua recapitulates and fulfills the conquest of the enemies of God fully and finally. And David, the protological David anticipates the eschatological David. As the eschatological David recapitulates the protological David, fulfilling the role of the royal king of the people of God with finality. No Davidic king after King Jesus. No Davidic king after King Jesus, son of David, for he is the last king, even as he is the last Davidic royal son. There's not going to be another son of David on a throne in Jerusalem. Jesus is sitting on his throne in the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, finished, finally, ruling over his kingdom, his people, his domain. All right, we've looked at individuals in this redemptive historical paradigm. We may also apply this protological eschatological paradigm to institutions. For instance, the protological temple of Solomon anticipates the eschatological temple of the eschatological Solomon. As the eschatological temple of the eschatological Solomon recapitulates the protological temple of the protological Solomon and fulfills it and him with finality. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. John 2:19. There is no temple in the eschatological kingdom of heaven. Revelation 21:22. 22. 
The temple is over. They're not going to be another temple for Christians to worship in Jerusalem. Not. It's done. It's over. He finished it. He's the temple. You want to meet God in a temple? You go to Christ. That's where you meet God. Because God, Jesus, is where God and man meet in his united two natures. You want to be part of that union? Go to Jesus and delight in it. And thank God that you don't have to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem anymore. Yes. And finally, we may apply this protological eschatological paradigm to offices. The protological prophets, in their office individually and corporately, anticipate the eschatological prophet individually and finally. As the eschatological prophet recapitulates the protological prophets, as the once and for all last and final prophetic word of God, see Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, summing up in himself all their prophetic individual prophecies in himself corporately with finality. He is the sum of all the prophets. Now I know, and this is a footnote, I know you don't spend a lot of time reading the smaller prophets, the minor prophets. I know that. And I know that one of the reasons you don't do it is you don't find them relevant or useful or meaningful. And the reason you don't do that and don't see the meaning is you're not looking for Christ in them. He told you, when he saw those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he told you, that he is everywhere in those prophets as he's everywhere in the books of the law, as he's everywhere in the books of the writings, which includes the Psalms. He is everywhere in that Old Testament book, including the minor prophets. Now, we did a series on Obadiah where we made it clear to you how you could see Jesus in that book. We did a series on Zephaniah. We did the same thing. We did some work on Jeremiah. We did the same thing. Daniel, the same thing. The point is that you can do the same thing as you read those books, thinking your own way about how is Jesus found in this revelation, because he's there. He's the inspiration behind the prophet, and he's the reality coming from that prophecy eventually. He's the eschatological prophet, whether it's Micah, whether it's Nahum, whether it's Joel, whether it's Isaiah, whether it's Jeremiah, oh, it's easier to see in Isaiah and Jeremiah. Well, those are easy for me. Yeah, I understand that. But even when the hard ones, he's there. And he invites you to search him out. He invites you to seek him with all your heart. He invites you to look and think and meditate and pray over those books that don't seem to make much sense to you because... You can't see how clearly they are relevant. The law, the writings, and the prophets testify of me, he says. And that's the truth. And you can take a break now and breathe a little sigh of relief. Now, as we resume, looking at verse 18... 
where the risen Christ declares that he has the keys of death and Hades. Keys is a reference to his power, his power to open and shut the gates of death and the portals of life. Death and hell are in his power. He holds the keys. Satan does not. The dark Lord does not hold the keys. Jesus is the Lord God who is the key keeper of death and hell. Now you may have noticed that the New American Standard, which I read, translates that phrase after keys, death and Hades. Yes, the Greek word here is Hades, but I would prefer the King James translation here, namely death and hell. For a number of reasons, uh, I think uh, hell is appropriate as a translation of the Greek word Hades, which is literally uh, what the text has. Now, that places me in a minority because most modern commentators regard the Greek word Hades or Hades not as hell, but as a shadowy netherworld. A shadowy netherworld similar to the netherworld of pagan mythology, and that bothers me. Bothers me a great deal. It's importing uh, comparative religions into the singularly unique biblical religion. But more importantly, this is not supported by Revelation 20, 13, and 14. So I want us to take our time and take a look at that passage, because it is the clearest passage which exegetes the meaning of the word Hades. Revelation 20, verses 13 and 14. Now, from the New American Standard, the reading is, The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades, I would translate that hell, death and hell gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades, New American Standard, I would translate death and hell, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Now, this is not Hades, even if that's how you translate it literally. This is not some uh, intermediate netherworld or underworld. This is a place where those, verse 15, if they were not written in the book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. This is a real place. This is not an imaginary mythological underground. This is a place where those who are not written in the book of life, those who are not the elect of God, they are cast there. It is a place where death itself is buried. So it is that place away from the living God. It is that place away from those who are part of the book of life. It is that place away from those who are not participating in the second death. They're participating in life, eternal life, not the second death, which is also eternal. So Revelation 20, verses 13 through 15, interprets 
Revelation 1, verse 18. In fact, the same sequence, death and hell, death and Hades, is used in both places. And it must therefore mean the same thing. It is a place. It is a real place. It is a real place peopled by those who are hardened in their unbelief and reject the Lord Jesus Christ. It is those who are cast away from him in that Olivet Discourse final judgment scene in which he sets the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left and the goats go into eternal eternal death, eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It is much more accurate to translate this word not Hades but hell because that is the imagery that it conveys. Place of everlasting torment in flame and fire. And Jesus uses the same category in that parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. In Luke 16, 23, the rich man lifts up his, his voice in Hades or in hell. And he talks to poor man Lazarus asking him to dip his finger in cool water that he may be relieved in this flame of torment. Jesus himself uses the term to refer to a place of eternal torment and destruction. So, Hades takes the definition off in a direction which deflects from the biblical uh, certainty of a final place of eternal torment and everlasting judgment for those not written in the book of life, those who die (coughs) rejecting the uh, Son of Man in his glory, Son of Man even in his incarnational reality. All right, one more thing to note about this unit. And that is uh, verse 19. Notice the language that Jesus uses there. Write the things which you have seen. Of course, that's the vision, and it's going to be a series of visions that we're going to see as we make our way through the book, Lord willing. But notice what he says after that in verse 19. The things which are and the things which will take place after these things. The things which are, the things which are now, the things which are present earthly reality, things which are for the church and the people of God in the now, in the our time, present tense. But also, the things which will take place, the things that are not yet, the things that have not occurred yet, the things which are part of the heavenly reality of the glorified church and the people of God, they are part of even my glory, the things which are between even as they are in the now and the not yet, the interadventual period, the interadventualist perspective which the uh, book of Revelation contains. In other words, there's support for our looking at the book of Revelation of giving us the viewpoint of what's ongoing in heaven itself and what is present with the church in the, in the midst of the pressures and tribulations of the world between the first and second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are visions and revelations. They are apocalypses of the church and the people of God between the advents, interadventual between the first and second advent of Christ, the drama of the book of Revelation is the drama 
of the revelation of the glory of the Son of God, our Savior, in the now and not yet, not yet of the reality of that apocalyptic drama and narrative. Keep that in mind, and if you forget it, remember this 19th verse, because it is underscoring that dramatic reality to you. Everything that's going to unfold in this book is going to unfold in light of the now-not-yet reality of the apocalyptic drama of the people of God. Ben. So in the first you have uh, right there for the things that you have seen, but then it has a conjunction end. So are we looking at three things that, he, that he's talking about, or is the things that are seen, those two things that fall? Yeah, I think what he's seen, he's referring to the visions that he's seen already. And then he's going on to describe how those visions are going to be, how, how what he has seen is going to dramatize what is now happening and what is not yet coming to pass. I think that's, I think that's the point. So you, you, you've got this eschatological dimension, which is real, okay, because Christ is real in it. And you've also got this temporal dimension, which is also real because the church and all believers are real in it. So he's putting it between those two uh, poles, okay, which I think correspond to the first and second advent of his of his career. Any other questions or comments? All right, shall we close in prayer? Father, we thank you for the stimulus of your word. And even if our suggestions are not accurate in every, one, in every case, we pray, O oh Lord, that you will correct our thinking and enlighten us to a better way, a more excellent way. But we pray, O oh Lord, that in it all, that the glory that is in Christ, which is dramatized here, will be the glory that enlightens and, and lifts up our lives. We who are dead in trespasses and sin by nature, raised from that death by the resurrected power of the Lord Jesus Christ, and seated even in heavenly places as he is seated there himself. What a marvelous testimony, what a marvelous reality, what a marvelous reality to our spiritual life. So, O oh Lord, encourage and assure us as we go on, even in the midst of tribulation, even in the midst of rejection and contempt. Encourage us as we go on that we're being conformed more and more into the image of the risen and glorified Christ. His spirit brings him present to us and our love to him is confirmed and encouraged and strengthened even as we walk by faith. So we bless you for the grace of the Lord Jesus, for the wonder of his finished work, for the eschatological completion of the protological suggestions, anticipations. And we will do this all in the name of Jesus, the protological and eschatological Savior of the people of God once and forever. Forevermore, amen.